0: Well, good morning again. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, Some of you maybe just came in a bit late or maybe some of you didn't have your morning coffee before Pastor Scott came up here and gave some announcements. So let me give us a bit of a a quiz. This is a yes or no quiz. You can shout it out as, as loud as you'd like. Yes or no, those are the only two answers. Will we be at the Rota next Friday morning? Good. I heard some good loud no's. Okay. Will we be next Friday night at the Marriott Hotel? That's a trick question. (laughs) I heard a few yeses out there. Will we be at the Marriott Hotel in Dira next Friday? No. No, because there is no Marriott Hotel. It's all boarded up. It's not there. So that would be really lonely. You'd be here lonely. Although I guess if a few people show up here Pastor Scott, I guess they can do something. But you'll be lonely here. You'll be lonely at the Marriott. Will we be at the Jumeirah Creekside Hotel in Garhoud next Friday night? Yes. yes 4 and 7 p.m. next Friday. And for the next three Fridays, we will be there at Jumeirah Creekside Hotel where we will be continuing this series in First Samuel. So we started... Last week, we're continuing today. I'll be continuing it next Friday at 4 and 7. We won't be putting the verses up in the screens because there are longer passages. We're jumping around, and we just want to encourage us to be looking at the text for ourselves. And so we have it printed in the bulletin, pages 2 and 3. Also, in your own Bibles or on a device, um, uh, we want you to be able to kind of look at the text yourself, be studying it as we walk through uh, the book of 1 Samuel, over 20 sermons or so in these next several months. So to that end, let's, let's pray for the Lord's grace as we look at his word. Oh, Father, we pray now as we look at the scriptures, we pray as we examine what you're doing through 1 Samuel, and we ask for your help. Open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear that we would be transformed even this morning. Lord, help us to look at Hannah, help us to look at Samuel, and more so help us to look at Jesus in your scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier this year, my wife Gloria and I went to the Asian Cup here in Dubai. This is the once every four-year battle for football supremacy here in Dubai. Asia. And it was here in Dubai. We arrived early for this match, uh, 45 minutes early, and yet there's a massive crowd trying to get in to the stadium. Well, we should have known because up until that point, this was the match of the tournament. Iran versus Iraq. People everywhere, national anthems being sung, cheers were being chanted, faces painted, flags waving, people wearing green, and Red and black and white everywhere. When we finally entered the stadium, 15 minutes into the match, our section, in fact, our entire side of the stadium was already full, which didn't make any sense to my mind because I had tickets for specific seats. <clears throat> went up to the security and they said, no, the section is full, which still didn't make sense because my ticket said row four seats, D and E. And so not one to take no for an answer. My wife, Gloria, and I, we weaved through the crowds, did whatever we could through the crowded stairs, found our seats, and we really gently said, said hi to the people in our seats. You know, we just said hi, and we did whatever you normally do when you find someone in your seat, be it on an airplane or on a train Or at a fantastic football match, we show them our tickets. (laughs) We just tell you that didn't work. That didn't work at all. Our seat stealers wouldn't even take their eyes off the football match. So much so that the people behind us told us to uh, move on to another place. They were, they were, our tickets were meaningless in the sea of cheers and chants. Eventually we realized that our efforts were futile to get to our seats. And so we just walked to the edge of the field and just stood kind of at, at the very end. We couldn't really see the game, but what we did have a perfect view of was the crowd watching the game in our seats. Cheering and chanting huge drums, lots of noisemakers, lots of chanting over and over again. I must have taken 45 videos and selfies with my phone. Everything extremely loud. Everyone had their heart into the match, cheering on their country and cheering on their team. It was breathtaking. Like sports fans, like cheering on our own country, like feeling that national pride Friends, we as Christians have all the more reason to cheer and to sing and to celebrate, don't we? We haven't just won a game, we have a Lord who rules over all things. And so our response to Him is to praise, it's to cheer. We're a people that gather together not bound genetically, not bound by our own blood, not bound by an earthly passport, but bound as citizens of another place. We sing praises to the Lord and give thanks to his holy name as the people of God. This is one of the reasons we gather every week. We sing because we have a reason to sing. God has saved us. We have a king, and he is the king of kings. We have a Lord, and he is the Lord of lords. And so if sports and national pride can move fans to tearful joy at a victory in the big match, it's no wonder that Hannah's triumph filled her with thanksgiving. It's no wonder that God's provision for Hannah filled her with praise. And for years she had been barren, broken, mocked. Social shame and emptiness, but the Lord provides for her. And in our passage today, we have a celebration. And the question the text is going to answer is where do you go in provision? Where do you go when you're provided for? What do you do when what you want has been provided? And we'll see Hannah responds in two ways. Hannah was faithful. And Hannah was thankful. Two responses to provision, faithfulness and thankfulness. Hannah's first response, she was faithful to God. Last week, we looked at Hannah grieving her childlessness. She's barren, mocked by Penina, Elkanah's other wife. But in her pain, she pours out her soul to God. Eli, the priest, speaks a word of encouragement to her. Hannah goes home with peace and comfort Trusting God's word to her. It was amazing. Do you remember? Hannah prayed. She got pregnant. Then she had peace. Did you see that? Her pregnancy brought peace to her heart. Did you notice that? Well, I hope you didn't notice that because that's not what happened, was it? It's a trick question. It's a little trick question to wake us up this morning. That's not what happened. That wasn't the order of progression. No, she prayed. Hannah prayed. And then she had peace. She had peace before she ever got pregnant. Only later did she conceive. Her peace didn't come from provision. Her peace came in the midst of pain. She didn't know whether she'd have a child, but she had shifted her hope from a son to a savior. We have to understand the order here. Hannah's joy wasn't contingent on her circumstances, but on her God. Redeemer Church, as you sit here this morning, how's your heart today? Maybe you have joy. Maybe you have sadness. Is your joy or your sadness contingent on your ever-changing circumstances or on your never-changing God? Maybe you can relate to this temptation. If If only my boss was nicer, then I'd be okay. If only my salary was a wee bit higher, then I'd be happy and fulfilled. If only I had better grades, then I'd be confident at school. If only my physical pain was healed, I'd have joy. If only this person paid attention to me, or if if that person just would leave me alone, then I'd be content. If only I was married. If only I was single. If only my spouse was nicer. If only I had kids. If only my kids were behaved better. If only, if only, if only. And I could go on and on. We could make the list really long. Is your joy tied to the gifts or to the giver of the gifts? Because if we tie our joy to our ever-changing circumstances, it's just going to go up and down, up and down, back and forth, depending on what we get or what we don't get, depending on the good days or the bad days. Is there something you've lost or something you so desperately want that you don't have that's crushing your spirits? This was Hannah's struggle. She was broken, despondent, hurting. She desperately wanted children. But Hannah figured out the solution, and she let her disappointment drive her to God. She had peace before she was pregnant. Look at, the, look at the text, verse 19. She gets peace. We saw that last week here in verse 19. They rose early the next morning, worshiped the Lord. Elkanah and Hannah are then intimate with each other. The Lord remembered her. Oh, God remembering doesn't indicate he forgot. God doesn't suffer from short-term memory loss. God doesn't need an assistant to remind him of what's happened No, to remember here means to bring to the forefront of God's mind his promises toward his people. So Hannah conceives. Here's the boy. And she bears a son. She calls his name Samuel, which means his name is God. She gives all the glory for this pregnancy to God. She gives the glory for this child to God. God does exactly what Hannah prayed. But even as God blesses her with a son, what are we thinking about at this point? When we read through the text, what comes to the forefront of our minds? The vow. Oh, Hannah, why did you have to make that vow? Oh, no, why did you pray for that? All you ever wanted was a child. And you went and made that vow. Well, the tension's building. What is Hannah going to do? Well, Elkanah and his household, they went up for the yearly sacrifice. But Hannah wouldn't go. She seems to be avoiding God's house. Has she changed her mind about giving up her son? Well, just the opposite. She refused to go up until she was ready to leave her son. She stayed behind to finish nursing him, to to wean him, which would have been at around the age of three years old. She wasn't forsaking her vow. It was at the forefront of her mind. She didn't want to go until she could leave her son behind. So Elkanah says, you can stay. He goes up. He pays his vow. We don't know what his vow is, but he's a faithful man. He takes care of it. Hannah finishes weaning. Samuel takes them up along with a three-year-old bull, an effa of flour, and a skin of wine. Hannah was generous in keeping her vow. The language here could actually mean a three-year-old bull, or it could mean three young bulls. It could mean one or the other. Either way, the point is, it was a big sacrifice for the family. Though three bulls make some sense because it was a requirement that when you offered up the bull, you'd offer up three tenths of an ephah of flour at the same time. And one ephah would then correspond with, with three bulls. Something scholars were unable to imagine her generosity in giving to God. And so, though you can take it either way, both translations are, 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 are right and acceptable. Perhaps the translation of one bull was adopted. Again, either way, it's, it's a big sacrifice. One bull, three bulls. And she does that along with a skin of wine. This was a vessel containing about 20 liters. So she brings all this. And it was a reminder to her and to those around her in the sacrifice that any offering made to God can only be brought on the basis of his mercy and grace. To approach the Lord meant a shedding of blood, a cleansing of sins, and Hannah understood this. Of course, Hannah's great generosity and sacrifice, her greatest generosity and sacrifice, wasn't in what she brought materially, but it was in the giving up of her one and only son. Now, some four years later, she remained faithful. It's one thing to offer up your child before you ever conceive, but it's another thing to be offering up your three-year-old, whom you've nursed, put to bed at night, sung songs to, played with, cared for. It's another thing to take your three-year-old and to take him to the priests and to drop him off. This was no small sacrifice. I mean, imagine Hannah bringing her three-year-old to give him up for adoption. She gets there, approaches Eli, Hi, high, high priest Eli. Oh, good, good morning, ma'am. You look a bit familiar to me. Well, yes, you remember me. I was that woman who came years ago whom you thought was drunk. I wasn't, I wasn't drunk. You encouraged me. You sent me off. Well, here I am. I'm back, and this time I've brought my son I have his backpack here. It's packed with his favorite clothes, his favorite scripture verses written out. It has his teddy bear and his toys. I'm leaving my son here with you. I prayed, God delivered, and now I'm delivering on my promise to bring my son to you. Now, I would assume Eli was at least a little bit surprised At the turn of events, I mean, we've all experienced surprises regarding specific people from the past. You know, maybe it was that quiet person in your secondary school who shows up at your school reunion, the president of a large corporation. Well, here, for Eli, this was the seemingly drunk woman who turned out to be a praying woman who now is leaving her three-year-old son with you to raise I mean, she's basically bringing her child to be raised by the minister. Should have been at least a little bit surprising. And Hannah says, though, that I've lent him to the Lord. That doesn't mean the same thing as loaning someone a few dirhams and expecting them to pay you back. No, lent means to give, to dedicate. Hannah could give the boy to the Lord because she realized the boy ultimately belonged, not to her, but to the Lord. Samuel was the Lent one. Now this is fascinating because the word for Lent in Hebrew happens to be the name, the word Saul. Now they wouldn't have known the name of Israel's first king, but it's an interesting play on words. Toward the end of Samuel's life, you may know that the Israelites, they were looking around at all the nations around them, and all the nations around them had kings. And so they said to Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations. We want to be just like them. They didn't want to follow aging Samuel the priest's lead, and so they look to the world, and that first king, his name would be Saul, And in a subtle way and in God's sovereignty, Hannah's naming points out that God had already given a Saul to Israel in the form of her son. God had provided a true Saul who had been asked for in faith and fervent devotion by Hannah, not in a worldliness and lack of trust like the Israelites did to Samuel for a king. Instead of following the godly leader in front of them, they passed on a spiritual Saul for a more worldly one. Well, Hannah is faithful. She gives this gift to God. And it's not a half-hearted response. It's not something like, hey, Eli, I'm going to bring up uh, my boy on the weekends. He can serve you for the weekend, and then I'll take him back with me for the rest of the week. This was not shared custody. This was not... um, You know, you take him for a bit, then I'll take him. It wasn't trading off custody. This was a complete surrender in Shiloh. Hannah gave her son to the Lord, and in verse 28, he worshipped there. It's a fitting ending to the chapter. It doesn't say who. I think it was Samuel. It could have been Elkanah. Some translations take it as plural. Anyway, in any event, surely the whole family was worshipping the Lord at that moment. Well, Hannah fulfills her vow. So where do you go in times of provision? Well, we respond to God in faithfulness. It's not normally going to look like dropping your son off at the priest's house to grow up. If I'm honest, that's never happened to me. None of you have ever brought your son to my house for me to raise. Now, parents on bad days don't get any ideas. Not going to accept him. Well, the point here is that in provision, we are to be faithful to the Lord. We live not for ourselves, but for God. I don't know what this looks like in your life specifically. It could look like any number of things, but First and foremost it means we don't take pride in our earthly success it means we don't hoard wealth but we give it away generously it means we don't we we prioritize it means we prioritize our children's spiritual growth more than their earthly success it means we Pray, we take our time to pray and to plan how God might use us in service to Him more than we pray and plan for our own comfort. And we give of what we love because we love God more. That's what it means to be a Christian. I don't know what it is for you, but we need to ask ourselves this question: How do we respond to God's provision faithfully? How do we respond to what God has given to us? In order to glorify him, how do we give to God what he's given to us? This was Hannah. This was her life. Her whole life changed. Her whole life she wanted a son, but now she wanted more than anything else to please her God, regardless of the sacrifice. So where do we go in times of provision? We go to God in faithfulness. We also go to God in thankfulness. That's Hannah's second response to God's provision. Hannah was faithful, but Hannah was also thankful. You can see there chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's a prayer. It's, it's really a song with movements in the song. So in any masterpiece, you have different, different movements there. Hannah responds to God's provision with a song of thanksgiving. In the first movement, we notice encompasses most of verses 1 down to verse 3. Hannah's thanking God for his work personally. She's thankful for God's work personally. You see the personal pronouns. My heart, my strength, my mouth, I rejoice. Hannah's speaking of her own salvation experience. Verse 1, my heart exults in the Lord. It's God who brings her joy. My strength is in the Lord. That word for strength means horn it's a symbol of power and victory in those days was an animal holding up its horn and holding up its head high and Hannah is saying here that I can hold up my head high because God has taken away my shame because God has provided for me victory my disgrace is no longer with me even her mouth she says derides or ridicules her enemies God's enemies are her enemies The most important thing to her isn't the words of others, but it's God's word which brings her security and significance. Verse 2, she breaks forth in a personal confession of faith. She's looking at who God is and she says God is holy. He's separate from all creatures. He's entirely perfect. In Hebrew poetry, we often see parallelism. It's where you get one statement followed by another similar statement that then develops and expands that initial idea. So she says God is holy, and then in parallel, she builds on it. God is holy, but there's also none besides God. You are holy, but you're also incomparable. I mean, these days, many would worship the fertility god, Baal. Specifically, if you were barren and you couldn't have children, you would go to Baal. You'd offer up a sacrifice, and you'd hope that this fertility God would would provide for you. But Hannah says, no, Yahweh, you're in a class by yourself. He's not one God above other gods. The God of Israel is the only one and true God. God is holy, but there's also none besides him. And then the end of verse 2, there is no rock like our God. I mean, think of a big, strong rock. Whenever I've gone to Beirut, Lebanon, I get to see City Bible Church and Pastor Marwan. I love my trips there. On our very first trip, we went to the Mediterranean to have a meal, and he wanted to show us the famous pigeon rocks. It's this big, beautiful limestone rock about 40 meters out into the sea. And as you sit there and watch, you can see the waves crash over and over and over again against that rock. And it's a reminder of the water that no matter how powerful the water is, it always loses. The rock always wins. It stands firm, anchored under the sea. Oh, God is stronger than any earthly rock. He can't be overthrown. And in verse 3, Hannah praises God for his omniscience. That means God is all-knowing. God is the God of knowledge. Those words in verse 3 don't seem to be directed specifically at penina. The first two verbs are plural, as is the your. Seems to be a general warning to all those prideful and arrogant that the wicked should wake up. That the wicked should wake up and know that God knows all things, that God sees all things, and that God plans all things. It was a a wake-up call. It was was an alarm. And then he says, she says of God that God will weigh all all of our actions at the end of our lives. That he is the true judge. Well, Hannah gives thanks to God for her salvation. Her faith was anchored on God's character and attributes. She praises God for who he is and for what he's done in her life. Oh, Redeemer Church, have you done this lately? Have you just paused? Have you just Stop to thank God for who he is. That he's holy. That he's altogether lovely. That he's pure. That he's perfect. That he's sovereign. That he's just. Have you taken time to praise God for who he is, but also for what he's done in your life? I paused my sermon prep yesterday to do just this, several things came to my mind. A few highlights were that God has been so gracious and patient with me, that he's forgiving, he's used me in spite of my failings, that he sustained me through physical pain, through trials, that he's wise, that he always knows best. And that while I'm always wanting more, God has provided me so much already. And so I I started that list and then I just kept going down on the list. And I just started writing all the different really specific ways that God has provided for me. It was a sweet exercise and a sweet time of praise because maybe you're like me this morning and last week's sermon was a bit easier to identify with than this week's sermon. Maybe you're still living in pain. Maybe you're coming this morning and you're thinking, well, Pastor Dave, uh, I'm not in a season or a day of provision, but in pain. And that's honestly how I feel. And so it was wonderful to look back and go, oh, wow, Lord, look at all the ways you have provided for me. And I just couldn't stop. The list kept getting longer and longer and longer. Well, friend, it would do us all good in our own hearts to take time this next week just to consider who God is and to consider all the ways God has provided for you because it's a lot easier to look at that empty part of the page as we eagerly anticipate God's provision and to forget God's faithfulness in the past, that top half of the page. This is how Hannah starts off in her song. Hannah praises God for who he is. For what he's done. There's a second movement of her song. Where she also praises God for his work generally. Verse 4. God is strong. The bows of the prideful are broken. Verse 5. The full are hungry. The hungry are full. The barren have borne a a full house. The fertile are forlorn. That means to be miserably sad. Verses 6 through 7 are filled with merisms. It's a literary device where ideas or words on extreme ends of a spectrum are used to express the inclusion of everything on that spectrum. Well, the point is the Lord controls all things, those extremes and everything in between. He brings to life, he brings down to Sheol, the place of death. He makes poor, he makes rich, he brings low and he exalts. The Lord holds the whole world in His control. Verse 8, He loves to take the poor from the ash heap. Now, the ash heaps were the garbage dumps outside the towns. They were disgusting rubbish burnt there constantly. Any destitute person who was looking for food there was the poorest of the poor. Yet, God sits them with the princes. I mean, it's an amazing image. What is, God, what is Hannah saying of God in all this? Well, that God works in unexpected and surprising ways. God's ways are not our ways. Now, personally, I love surprises. I love surprising people. I love being surprised. Now, not the kind of surprise when you're walking around the corner and someone jumps out in front of you and scares you. Now, I don't like those kinds of surprises. Those aren't funny. But when someone's creative... They kind of, in a godly way, you know, lead someone just a little bit astray to surprise them out of love. Now, that doesn't count as lying, by the way, just for the record. No, I love that. I love surprises. This is what our God is. Our God is a God of surprises. God's ways are not our ways. God doesn't do things the way we would think. He reverses things. It's just the opposite of how we think about something. The weak are now strong. The barren have children. The poor are made rich. I mean, there's a pattern to God's salvation. God turns weakness into strength. When the people need a leader, they cry out to God. Who does God choose? Well, it goes to Moses, the stutterer, to Joseph, the young son, to David, the youngest, the son who's forgotten, who's out in the fields. It goes to the women. It goes to the barren, not the fertile. It goes to the Apostle Paul, broken and and bruised, thorn in his flesh. I mean, do you see a pattern? I mean, we see this all throughout Scripture. God works with the marginalized and the forgotten. We saw it all last year in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to see it again all throughout this year in 1 Samuel. Weakness is always God's way. I mean, God's promise back to Abraham, Genesis 12 and 15, was that there would be a promised seed that would come. Well, how did God bring it about? How did God bring this promised seed about? Abraham's wife, was Sarah, was, was barren at 90 years old. She gave birth to Isaac. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, barren. Jacob's wife, Rachel, Baron, Samson's wife, Baron Elizabeth. Elizabeth was past childbearing age when an angel announced the conception of the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist. Brokenness and barrenness. God was faithful to keep His plan moving along, but each time it was God Himself who intervened in brokenness and in weakness. And so while God's ways might be surprising to us, they're not a surprise. While God's ways of delivering are unique, it's not surprising that he will deliver his people. And in the song, Hannah thanks God for his deliverance, both personally, then generally in the second movement, and then in the final and third movement, Hannah thanks God for his work ultimately. Look at verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Weakness is the way in this life, but weakness is also the way in the next life. Not by might shall a man prevail in the end. Verse 10, the Lord will defeat his enemies and he will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We saw the horn in verse 1 and now again in the end here. It forms a chiasm. Now we've seen all kinds of literary devices this morning. Been a a little bit of a literature lesson. That's because this is poetry. It's because this is a song and, and literary devices are used to accentuate and to point out the meaning. And here we have the horn brought up both in the beginning and the end. A chiasm is where... The beginning and end of a section say the same thing or a very similar thing, and the point is that everything in between is essentially about that same topic. And the point here is that God is holy, God is strong, and in particular, that He will exalt the horn of His anointed. There's a day coming when the horn of the king will be unleashed in the world. And that word anointed means Messiah. It's the very first time in the the Bible, that the word Messiah is used. Hannah is quite perceptive. She knows the Messiah is coming. She has such faith in God that she gives up her one and only son. Moms wouldn't normally do this, but she does, realizing she's a part of God's bigger plan. As I mentioned earlier, this is not something we copy or imitate. It's unique in the Bible. Or should we say... Nearly unique. There's another woman to whom God says, you're going to have a son. You're going to raise the son. He's going to live in your home. You're going to wean him. You're going to feed him. You're going to hold him. You're going to spend time with him. But he's not yours. You're actually his. Now, if God said that to you, what would you do? Well, Mary, the mother of Jesus, went straight to God's word. She knew Hannah's story and found comfort in it. How do we know this? Well, much of Mary's song in the Gospel of Luke is taken directly from Hannah's song here in 1 Samuel. Isn't that amazing? Mary knew Hannah's prayer. She'll say in Luke, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has brought down the mighty and exalts those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry and the rich are sent away empty. And it goes on and on. Mary sings the same things. Take some time later on today as you're doing Bible study and open up to Luke chapter one and just go ahead and read what's called Mary's Magnificat. It's Mary's song of praise there in Luke. It's wonderful to see and to compare. Surely in Hannah's song, back here in First Samuel, she was foreseeing David, but the song is looking even beyond that. Why? Well, because centuries later, Mary faced an impossible birth and identified herself with Hannah. Hannah's son would deliver Israel momentarily, But Mary's son would deliver the world forever. Jesus is the ultimate Savior, born not to a barren woman, but to a virgin woman. A most improbable, a most impossible, a most miraculous birth. A Savior born in weakness. A Savior living in weakness. Marginalized, beaten, and crucified. Hannah gave up her one and only son but so did God the Father. And in this case, the son wasn't saved from an ash heap. He was led outside the gates of Jerusalem to be crucified on a cross on an ash heap at Golgotha. He was crucified in the most horrible of deaths. But on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Salvation had come through death and weakness and defeat. This is how salvation comes. It comes when we acknowledge our sinfulness and our inability to come to God on our own. Well, friends, heaven and eternal life awaits for those who repent of their sin and trust in God to save them. So if you're here this morning, maybe you've just moved here. Maybe you just thought, okay, as, as this next school year or this next kind of year living in Dubai, Sharjah, kicks off, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go to a church service I'm going to try to get right with God. If that's you this morning, maybe you haven't been here in a while. Maybe you've never been to a church service. Oh, friend, maybe you feel that you've got nothing you can bring to God. You feel wholly inadequate. Well, if that's you, you're exactly right. Salvation and God's church is for those who raise their hands and say, I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. It's the only thing you can bring to God. To God is nothing, nothing but repentance and faith. Now, God is the author of salvation. And so here we see in Hannah's song this this chiasm, that this horn of salvation will come. But you also have a chiasm if you read 1 and 2 Samuel, that the books of Samuel here in the beginning of 1 Samuel, you see Hannah's song. Well, at the end of 2 Samuel, you see David's song, David's song of Deliverance. The author wants to tell us that all of this, that all of his writing is about God and his salvation. Israel's hope and our hope is that the Lord would save through his anointed one. This is why we sing today. This is why we can cheer today. This is why we can celebrate whether we're in pain or provision. And so Redeemer Church, we certainly can get excited over our nation's sporting events. That's okay. We can get excited and have national pride as we cheer on the Philippines or Pakistan or India or England. A victory can bring us joy. But Redeemer Church, nothing should cause us to break out in thanksgiving and song and praise like the victory that we have in Jesus. Nothing should cause us to break out in praise as the people of God than a reflection on the fact that our God has saved us through the blood of Jesus and God will keep us to the end. Oh, Redeemer Church, would this be something that we would cheer about today and sing loudly because our God is a great God. Let's pray together.